tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Oh, I just mmming over a cup of coffee with the voice in my head. Mmm, coffee. At any rate, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful. Enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, first things first, let's go to the big book on the coffee table, the Bible. Okay, well, we're, we're dealing with the second, or the first letter still to the Thessalonians. We're in the fourth chapter, the 13th verse and following. And this is a, a, a reading that we do at funerals a lot. We do not want you to be unaware about those who've fallen asleep so that you may not grieve like the rest who have no hope. You know, it is interesting that um, people who don't know the Lord, um, well, I don't know how to put this, but I've been to some really, really good Christian funerals. <laughs> I just, I don't know, I just have that, that though we grieve, we don't grieve like the rest who have no hope. You know, you're allowed to grieve. I mean, separation is always a sad thing. Uh, I remember hearing a sermon, a beautiful sermon, about uh, just, you know, uh, I lived for most of my life uh, with with immigrant people, uh, Puerto Ricans principally. And, um, you know, in, in the old days, now it's probably no longer true, um, but in the old days, you know, Puerto Rico is pretty poor, and uh, well, it still has its issues, but it was it was really poor. And the thing is, uh, people would get on. You know, Dad would would uh, take a plane to the United States to because there's no making a living in, in on the island. And uh, well, of course, as I said, that has changed. But uh, get on the plane, and uh, there would be tears because there was a separation. But then uh, there was a second time when he found the job and the, 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 the apartment and had gotten things ready when the rest of the family got on the plane and went to the States and there were tears again, but these were tears of joy. And so that kind of is the thing that, that we have the, uh, um, uh, we grieve but not like the rest who have no hope. I think that's an important thing that St. Paul is saying. Uh, we have this hope of eternal life, uh, this hope of, of forever. And, um, you know, that, that uh, 
it is a very difficult thing to watch people in the world uh, go through a funeral. Uh, and as I said, I, <laughs> I've been some really rollicking Christian funerals. Uh, that that uh, and so people are even scandalized that that there's joy in the midst of the tears sometimes, but that's one of the big benefits of knowing Christ. Now that said, um, uh, I think that you got to put this what St. Paul is saying here in context. Uh, many of us have heard about the rapture, and it's interesting because I don't believe the word rapture appears in the New Testament. It does say that we shall be caught up to meet him here in this in this text. It's a verb, not a noun. Rapture is a noun, and uh, it's it's stated in a verb. And so many uh, people just have this big theological uh, uh, scenario that that. Uh, well, then there'll be the tribulation, and then there'll be the days of darkness, and there'll be this and that, and none of that is really in the scriptures. It's sort of a tacking together of different people uh, or different accounts of, 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 of the coming of the Lord. And uh, we're kind of uh, different as Catholics. We don't believe in the rapture. We believe in what's called the parousia, which means the presence, that the Lord will become present he, he will be present, and he already is present in the Eucharist, in, in, in the, every tabernacle. So that presence will be made known to all people. So our, our perspective is a little different. But this idea about the rapture, uh, it's, it's kind of a modern thing. Uh, it, it didn't exist before the 1800s as a, as a developed theology. So that's kind of, that's kind of odd. Uh, it's, 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 very popular among uh, among certain evangelical groups, but it's a, it's believe it or not it's a, it's a new idea, eighteenth um, or nineteenth and twentieth century. Um, a lot of people would uh, uh, argue with that, but the theory, uh, this kind of uh, uh, knitting together of the Gospel of Matthew and Second, First, and Second Thessalonians and Revelation, uh, uh, sewing them together uh, as if they were history books and not books of prophecy or or epistles. Um, uh, this kind of started with a fellow named John Nelson Darby in 1833. So. Um, it's it's a new idea. I just wanted to mention that our, our idea as Catholics is that uh, Jesus is is coming back, but uh, he's already here. So it's a both and for us. All right. Well, let's go to that now. Back to the passage. The the reason Saint Paul talks about it is that um, so many people who believe that the Lord was imminently returning. And St. Paul, is, I believe, is writing in First and Second, First and Second Thessalonians, you know, calm down, work for a living, maintain your life, uh, be responsible, because we don't know when the Lord is coming. He's coming, but we don't know. There'll be the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and uh, uh, the dead in Christ will rise first. Because people are worried about, but Jesus is coming soon, and... and, and and Aunt Margie, she's dead, and and she's not going to be there. You see, in Judaism, the 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 understanding of what happens when you die is very, uh, oh gosh, it's very foggy, 
And uh, the Jews believe in resurrection. They don't always believe in life after death. Huh? How can you have, well, how can you be fully alive without your body? And and there's a kind of literalism there. You know, the, they're talking about the resurrection, but not the survival of death. I remember Rabbi Lefkowitz telling me, being a Kabbalist, they believe in reincarnation, many of them, and the resurrection of the dead. Well, which one of them will be raised? Who knows? I mean, it's just very hard to figure. And it isn't a coherent theology. Uh, we try to work on this coherent theology idea, and it's it's very difficult to do because these are spiritual things. And... St. Paul, uh, to me, one of the great catch-all verses in the scripture is, I has not seen, ear has not heard what God has in store for those who love him. In other words, we can describe it in a thousand different ways, and none of them will be exactly perfect. And that's, I think, what St. Paul is saying when he ends here with, uh, thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore console one another with these words. He says, don't lose hope, because uh, if someone you love has died, the Lord can raise them up anyway. Uh, and we'll all be caught up with him. Uh, it's not a it's not a A B C D E step one, step two, step three. No, it's trust the Lord. Well, let's go to Luke the fourth chapter, the sixteenth verse and following, uh, which is of course the gospel. But Jesus came to Nazareth where he had grown up. I, I shared this not long ago, but it won't stop me from sharing it again. The exile to Babylon which happened almost 600 years before uh, the birth of Christ, uh, was not an exile into slavery. It was, uh, it was what we would call ethnic cleansing, that many people died in the journey, uh, but the idea was not simply to kill them, it was to displace them. And it was a very important um, uh technique among Assyrians and Babylonians in establishing their empires because they needed to separate people from their gods. Gods were always thought of as gods of the place. Each city had its god. Each little area had its god. In Canaan, they had all sorts of different Baals, which were the lords, uh, who were nature spirits, essentially. And um, if you could take someone away from his land... You took him away from his God and his his identity as a person, and you could fuse him into into the wider society. This didn't happen with the Jews because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This may sound an odd way to describe God, but he's portable. <laughs> he, he's not limited to one place. Remember the story of Naaman the Syrian, which we uh, which Jesus refers to today. That Naaman the Syrian asked for. Uh, a couple donkey loads of, of, of holy land to take back so he could worship the God of Israel because you had to have the actual land of Israel in order to worship the God of Israel. So he, if you remember that story of Naaman the Syrian, um, he, he needed part of Israel in order to worship the God of Israel, he thought, which, well, that wasn't necessary at all. Um, the, idea that God is, well, for lack of a better word, portable, preserved the Jews. The Israelites had gone over, the northerners had gone over to the worship of, of, of the Baals, of the, of the lords, the, 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 the fertility gods of those places. And so when they went into exile, they lost their identity and they never came back. But 
the, the Judeans who became in Babylon, what we would call the Jews, uh, I've, that's my theory, not exclusively, but that's the theory that I, to which I hold. Um, they developed a, a way to be an Israelite without the temple, a way of life that revolved around the law and the synagogue. And this happened in Babylon. And they didn't lose their faith because there had been reforms in Israel, we see in the scriptures, that the temple had been purified and the people had been reformed as if in preparation for this exile. So they maintained their their religious identity and they were able to come back to the Holy Land. Not many of them came back, though. Most of them stayed in Babylon. Babylon was kind of the New York of the Middle East. It was a big city, and it had good deli. Uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't, you, you go. We'll be there next year. We'll send money. That's kind of the way it was when, when the state of Israel was founded. Everybody's going to go make Aliyah, meaning to go up to Jerusalem. And you go. We'll, we'll send money. We'll be back next year. And, of course, most of them never went back. And that was true uh, of the Babylonians. Now, a uh, couple hundred years before the time of Christ, uh, maybe a hundred years, uh, there was more talk about Messiah. And so the royal family of David thought, hmm, you know, they were threadbare, uh, down in the down in their luck, uh, aristocrats. Uh, and they still maintain their identity as a, as a royal family. The the exilarch, the the head of the exile community in Babylon, was always a descendant of David. Uh, well, the wider family decided maybe it's time to go back uh, to to the the homeland, the old country. Uh, they're talking Messiah, and the Messiah is to come from our family. Well, we should be there <laughs> for this. And they settled principally, this is according to Bargel Pixner, Father Bargel Pixner was a fascinating uh, student of the geography of the Holy Land a few years back. He's with the Lord now, we, we hope. Uh, well, uh, he said that they settled in two towns, one east of the Jordan called Kokoba, which means the star in Aramaic. Uh, there is a prophecy in the, the, almost the only prophecy of the Messiah in the Torah, a star will rise out of, out of, uh, uh, out of Israel. And then the others were settled in a town west of the Jordan called Nazareth. And this was a tiny town that was mostly populated by the um, descendants of King David, these down-on-their-luck, threadbare aristocrats who were rather convinced of their own aristocracy. A tiny town, but it had its own synagogue. The point in all this is that these threadbare aristocrats had come back to take advantage of the coming era of the Messiah in which they would be on top again. And Jesus says to them, it's not going to be that way. That that it isn't just about Judaism. It isn't just about Israel. It isn't about Judah. It's about the whole world. And they were furious with him. They wanted to kill him. They were all his relatives who wanted to throw him over the cliff. And uh, um, I think that's important for us to understand that sometimes my relatives have wanted to throw me over the cliff and not always because I was uh, a good witness for the Lord. But you follow what I, I'm saying, that we always think that 
we can preach the proper sermon and convert our in-laws. It's not going to happen. Jesus had very little success with his own people. However, a beautiful, beautiful ending to the story is that when Pope Benedict went to, back to the Holy Land, they built a, a, a great stadium. Uh, the, the citizens of Nazareth built a great stadium at exactly the place where tradition taught that Jesus was to be thrown over the cliff. And I think that's kind of funny that the descendants of the people who wanted to throw Jesus over the cliff, uh, many of them, uh, uh, many of the, those citizens of today's Nazareth, Nazareth are probably genetically descended from its inhabitants many years ago. They built a stadium to welcome the emissary of someone who their ancestors ancestors want to throw over a cliff. That's how history works. I think it's kind of kind of cool. So don't give up on your family, um, but understand that success is not going to be easy. And I always say, when you can't speak Christ to someone, you have to be Christ for them. Be the best and kindest person in the family, and when they're in need, they will come to you and ask for prayer. All right, uh, let us. It's time to discuss mass hysteria. Nice song. Just not the kind of song that uh well let's let's get into it. Alright, uh dear voice in my head. Uh, there's another piece of music I want to play. This is called Old Roman Chant. And this is probably what Mass sounded like 400, mm, I want to say 400 AD. Okay, hit it. That's not Byzantine. That's Latin. Dixit ad me domine. The Lord said to me, uh, I think that this is very important to realize that this is not the first time in history that there has been an attempt at simplification of the Mass. Gregorian chant uh, doesn't go back to the earliest days of the Church. Well, in, in a way it may. Um the the there is a school of thought that the psalms of ancient jewish worship influenced early christian ritual chant a lot of scholars don't accept that anymore um however the psalms have always been important for uh christian worship and it is reasonable to think that that some of the psalm tones, not Gregor, all of Gregorian chant, but the psalm tones, uh, um, have uh, go back to the first days of the church. A lot of scholars say no, but um, I have a suspicion they do. Not all of them, but they do. Not all Gregorian chant even, but the psalm tones. Um, and Gregorian chant seems to be a simplification of earlier uh, music used at the liturgy. It, it seems to have been the chant that was used in the Vatican and in the uh, uh, 
well, for the not the Vatican so much as as uh, in the papal mass, uh, it would would have been. It, it seemed to have caught on to the monasteries. You know, there's so much argument about uh, um, the origins of these things, uh, but they really didn't catch on uh, in the in the wider church until. Mm, uh, nine, uh, 900, 1000 well, A.D. Uh, the idea that somehow the early church, uh, in the catacombs, they're singing Gregorian chant, that isn't true. Gregorian chant is a simplification. Now, uh, in in the text of of the um, of, of Sacrosanctum Concilium, saying it the right way, um, we read that. In, in, in paragraph 116, the church acknowledges Gregorian chant as specially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, other things being equal, it should be given pride of place in liturgical services. If someone is talking about, well, the liturgical reforms of the Second Vatican Council mean that we have to play uh, these new songs that are 60 years old now. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I want one of those new songs, you know, like On Beagle's Wings or Come Dance in the Forest, Come Bump into Trees. Those songs that have become so popular... They're 50, 60 years old now. They're not new, and they're old music to young people. Uh, I'm going to talk more about the Gregorian chant in the liturgy. Um, and a Gregorian chant does not have to be in Latin. It doesn't have to be in Latin. But the point I'm trying to make today is simply that, that remember, that the Roman liturgy is supposed to have a noble simplicity. That's why Gregorian chant works very well at mass because it is simple. And I think it's very useful for congregational singing. And I'll explain that, uh, in coming episodes of the current, uh, uh, the current, uh, ax grinding. What I really want you to understand is simplifications in the liturgy have gone on before and they will, <laughs> and probably should come again. So um, I think that so many people haven't heard that the Roman liturgy is supposed to have a noble simplicity because it gets crazy with the, I remember this fellow running up to me, I was a choir director and they had two choirs, two, two, no waiting, two choirs, one singing in the front, one singing in the back. And he ran up to me after that was over and he said, Oh, how did you like the music? I said, Oh, I loved it. I hope God did too. You follow my point that we the call of the of the council was a simplification of the liturgy to make it more available to people and to make it a more genuine dialogue. I don't think that's happened. Uh, we're still doing the performance pieces and uh, trying to prove what a great great folk choir we have or a great chant choir or a great whatever choir. You know, and we forget that it's about the Lord. All right. Well, that's that's the grinding of the axe. OK, we're going to take a break. I'll come back with some letters and uh, uh, we'll open the phones at 888-914-9149. 888-9149. Boy, that last thing on Gregorian Chan, I'm sure nobody liked that. We'll be right back. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus, I know what I am. This isn't Gregorian chant. 
but it's still good. All right. All right. Let us go to letters. Okay. This letter is from uh, Robert. And he's asking about um, how the current catechism was created. Well, uh, th that's complicated. Every, every council... Uh, um, starts or it's 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 not thought to be done until there's a catechism produced council trent produced a catechism um uh, so finally the vatican council uh the second vatican council produced a catechism and uh, it was the decision to 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 publish a catechism uh, it was it, it it was at the extraordinary general assembly of the synod of bishops that that Saint John Paul convened in 1985, and um, there was a commission composed of of bishops and cardinals, and uh, uh, the text was approved in 1992. Um, it was interesting that it was first punished in pun, punished published in France in French. Uh, and then translated other languages. The original copy is not in Latin; it's in French. So that's what it was about, because people were were just talking about, well, everything's changed, and you know, the Second Vatican Council really changed nothing doctrinally, and changed very little, as we're, I'm talking about it in mass hysteria, liturgically. So it was a decision to to reduce some of the chaos, and it was the natural thing after a council to. To kind of publish uh, what what the council had talked about, and that's so. I, I hope that answers the question, Robert. Um, it's a it's a beautiful beautiful document, and uh, we're, and very readable. I, I think it's very readable. Okay, now this is um, uh, this is from uh, 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 I think it's Dorothy, who I think goes by the name Dorley. Yeah, yeah. She's a, we, I'll speak English. That's uh, Dorley and I have spoken German together, I think. Um, did the apostles speak, read, and write in Greek? Did Jesus and Mary? Did the early Christians in Rome speak Greek? Where did the Latin language come from and how did it become the language in Rome? It was the language of, of the Romans. Okay, here's, here's the theory of everything. Uh, there was a group of people living in Central Asia um, called, uh, well, we call them Indo-Europeans, but I think that the more common scholarly name for it now is the Yam Yamnaya cultures. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. But they spoke a language that um, uh, worked, <laughs> and uh, they sort of branched out. Some of them went south and uh, east to uh, places like India and Persia, some of them went due south into places like Turkey, and they were a nomadic people, and they brought their language. And uh, there's some people who talk about conquests, other people who talk about trade. Who knows how they spread their language, but they did. And a lot of them came into Europe. Some of them went northeast um, and ended up in places like Lithuania. And some of them went. Uh, not northeast, I mean northwest, and some of them then went southeast, uh, coming to India, and they they 
developed a language called Sanskrit, the sacred language of India. It is kind of the, the mother tongue of, uh, of many Indian languages. Interestingly, I heard from a number of Lithuanian priests who went to a World's Fair that Sanskrit, the language of India, uh, which is a sacred language, it's almost extinct now as a living language, but it's still a scholarly language in India, like Latin is in the West. Lithuanian and Sanskrit were almost mutually understandable. They could communicate with each other. These Brahmins in the Hindu pavilion, the Indian pavilion at a World's Fair, and these Lithuanian priests visiting. That, to me, is utterly amazing. Well, there were a number of groups that came into Europe speaking uh, developments of this Indo-European uh, language family. The Celts, who still exist in the western parts of Scotland, Ireland, uh, England, and uh, uh, France, who speak a Gaelic language or a Celtic language. The Italic languages, which went down into Italy, the Greek dialects, of which only modern Greek is currently extant, into Greece, and uh, the Germanic languages, which went up into Scandinavia. So these languages developed. That's where Latin came from. It was a dialect of the Italic languages, the Italian languages spoken in the area of Rome about a thousand years before Christ. Rome became a great empire, and great empires tend to uh, draw migrant groups into their uh, into their capitals. That's where the money is. That's where the government is. And also, Rome was built on slavery. Perhaps half of the people in Rome were slaves taken in war. At the time, the Greeks had colonized the world from southern Spain and southern France all the way to India. You could use Greek as a language traveling from, from Marseille in France or Cadiz in Spain. And you would still find people who to whom you could speak in northwest India. So Greek was the common language of the ancient world. Latin was not the common language. It was a language spoken in the environment of, in the environs of Rome and where Rome Romans colonized. Um uh, that's where, if you ask where Latin came from, that's where it came from. Uh, most people in Rome spoke Greek at the time of Christ, not because it was the indigenous language of Rome, but because there were so many people who were enslaved and others who had emigrated into Rome. And so the liturgy would have been in Greek in Rome in the first days. But as the Greek world and the Roman world moved apart, in the West, Latin became the common language and developed into Spanish and French and Portuguese, and oddly enough, into Romanian and uh, some smaller languages in Switzerland. Uh, Greek stayed in the East, and it developed only into Greek. Ancient Greek developed into modern Greek. It has no other descent languages uh, at all. Uh, but as those two worlds drifted apart, as Rome was taken over by barbarians, Latin became the common language of the West because the barbarians, they couldn't deal with Greek, uh, but they managed uh, to have people around who could run things in Latin. So that's where Latin comes from. And it isn't, uh, it's never thought of as a language uniquely sacred until 
more modern times. Uh, the liturgy of the church was in Latin, but so was all scientific dialogue. Uh, Newton wrote his Principia uh, in Latin. Newton's great book, uh, Principia Mathematica, was written in Latin because scholars understood Latin. The Bible was published in Latin because anybody who could read in the West spoke Latin. So it, it wasn't because it was uniquely sacred uh, to the ancient church. It was because it was the common language of Europe uh, until rather recent times uh, that... that uh, 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 Something that people don't think of is nobody spoke Italian until oh Garibaldi in the in the uh, late eighteen hundreds. People in Venice spoke the Venetian dialect. Uh, um, people who, uh, uh, who were in Naples spoke Neapolitan. Sicilian still speaks Sicilian, but the dialect of Dante was. Florentine and that became Etruscan or uh, Tuscan and that became standard Italian. But until if you'd said you speak Italian, they would have looked at you crazy until about 1870. So language development fascinates me, but I think it's particularly important to us because we're all kind of in a, a frenzy about, about liturgical language and why do we have this language? Why don't we have this language? And I think we need to, to really look at it uh, more objectively. I don't know if that helps anyone to understand. Dorley, I hope that explains to you uh, where did the Latin language come from. It came from the hills around Rome, and it endured. <sighs> Let's go to a break. Oh, we'll come back with phone calls. Throw me some softballs. 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Oy. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. He's got the whole, got the world. whole world in his hands. I believe he does. Even as we try to squirm out of his hands, he's still got us in his hands. All right, let's go to the word of the day. The word of the day is air. Uh, the the uh, uh, we read in the gospel or in the in the uh, uh, first reading that uh, we will be caught up to meet him in the air, and. Uh, well, that, as I said earlier, has given people all these ideas about the rapture that, that you know, we'll all, you know, all of a sudden we'll be, um, the bus driver will be gone and the bus will crash. He's been taken up into the air. It doesn't say that it's going to happen like that. Who knows how it's going to happen? But the word for air is, of course, in Greek, air, air. They, they have an ah first. But it, what it really meant was the lower heavens. Think of the word heaven. The word in Greek for heaven is uranos, uh, and and it's also the word for sky. That this idea that uh, you can say the kingdom of the sky as well as the kingdom of heaven, the words are interchangeable, and in Hebrew they're interchangeable. The air was the lower realm of the sky, and the ether was the upper realm of the sky. Uh, we read about the spirits of the air 
uh, the lower spirits, uh, and they're demonic in, in the scriptures. Uh, but uh, the, the where do we find the the oh the powers there? Uh, that's Ephesians two two, and the 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 Jews believe that the devil, the prince. Uh, of of demons in that demonic world filled the realm of the air. In other words, it's the spiritual realm. You know, the, that kind of literally you get sucked up into the air. I, I don't know if that's going to happen. That Maybe, but I don't know. We'll see. However, the concept of the air is the lower realm of heaven, the lower realm of sky. And that's it's it's a spiritual realm. So we'll be caught up in the spiritual realm uh, is what this passage from First Thessalonians is saying. All right, let's go to phone calls. Ahoy! Margaret from Chicago, are you with us? I'm here. I would like to get your opinion. Good. I know you said there's nothing um, in the Bible about rapture, um, but I'd like to get your opinion yep. on, um, let's say, Garabandel. Well, not or, nothing. Uh, but... Yes. And and, and Medjugorje, where they yeah. after three days of darkness, and the first is sign, then the warning. You know, you want to know my opinion about all of those things? It's biblical. Let me find it. Uh, um, I have told you these things before. Uh, let me. Okay, that's in the Gospel of John. Uh, John fourteen twenty nine. That's my opinion. You heard me say, this is Jesus of the Last Supper. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father. Because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. Remember the word believe, and its root means trust. I have told you this so that when it does happen, you will trust. Authentic prophecy from the Lord may talk about the future, but it never seems to paint the future in an exact way. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, I'm real big on Fatima. I think Fatima was one of the most important events in Western history, especially modern Western history. The Lord, through whom we believe the Blessed Mother, told the visionaries, the seers of Fatima, that uh, uh, if mankind did not repent, a worse war was coming and there would be a sign in the sky. They didn't, the, the Lord didn't say when it was coming. The Lord didn't say uh, um, what the sign in the sky was. Uh, uh, then looking out her convent window, Sister Lucia saw the northern lights in Portugal. It was a very strange occurrence. The lo northern lights uh, could be seen as far south as southern Italy, I believe, and and uh, it was very unique. And looking out the window, she said, "That's the sign." She knew it when it happened. And two weeks later, Hitler took over Austria. So, uh, this idea that well, God's going to give us the itinerary, just like the 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 stage bill of a play, Act One, Act Two, Act Three, that doesn't seem to be the way God does it. And so. Three days of darkness, what does that mean? Does that mean three days without the internet? Does it mean three days in which the sun doesn't shine? Does it mean three days in which everyone is blind? I don't know. If it happens, when it happens, I, I'll trust God. You see, I have told you these things before they happen, so that when they do, you will trust. This idea that, well, you've got to get the blessed candles because every, you know, 
this borders on superstition. So uh, God, when he, I have known people of genuine prophetic gifts. And when uh, one particular friend of mine, uh, when she's praying for him, she'll call and say, Father Rich, I was praying for you. And I think, oh dear, what have I done now, Lord? And she'll say things like, I saw this. I don't know what this means. What do you think? What does it mean? I, I was praying for you and I saw this. This I, it literally happened before they asked me to do this show. I saw that they were giving you a red teaching chair. What is it? Well, of course, I sat in a red chair to do the show. Uh, um, you know that that I had no idea what it meant, but it was quite clear after it had happened. So, what do I think about Garabandel? What do I think about the three days of darkness? What do I think? And, well, saints have said these things. Saints are not infallible. <laughs> you know, they're they're holy, but they're not infallible. And and so one lives in faith, one lives in trust. And there are all these things that are going around, and we won't know which ones are true and which ones are false until they happen or don't happen. That's my opinion. Does that help at all? Yes. Thank you. Can you Good. ask one more question? <laughs> yes. Oh, sure. Okay, what the um, heck? <laughs> thank you. Um, I had gone to an Anglican Mass, and I was shocked and how yes. much it was like ours. It's almost exactly yes. like ours. And I was wondering, yes. was that the change after Vatican II? Did they follow us, or did we follow them into the Mass, our Mass? Um, yes. Uh, the answer, of course, to that is yes. <laughs> that that uh, Anglican service, remember, comes from, it's a development of, of uh, medieval Catholicism in England. And they streamlined it. And uh, so the Mass as we have it now, and the Anglican Mass, the Anglican Communion Service, uh, which we don't believe is, is truly a Mass, um, they have common roots. However, uh, Cranmer changed the... Uh, Archbishop Cranmer, during the Reformation, changed the book of uh, the, the prayer significantly, and he denied that the Mass was, in fact, a sacrifice. So it's not, in its fundamental being, it is not what we do. But in its external appearance, it's very much like what we do because it, it came from a common source. And a lot of, I, I, I don't know a lot about Episcopal liturgy, Episcopalian liturgy, or Anglican liturgy, but there are things that they have incorporated, is my suspicion, uh, that are from the changes made in the Catholic Church uh, since the liturgical movement. Does that help? Kind of. <laughs> That's all I can say. Kind of. Because, <laughs> kind of. Yes, we have a common source. In the... Go on. Well, I would just think after Vatican II, our, our mass has changed. So at some point, they changed also, the Anglican. Yes. Yes, and some okay. of the change That's... was informed by what we do. Some of the change was, yeah. but yeah. more importantly, we have a common. We had a common liturgical ancestor, the Catholic Mass of the Middle Ages. So, um, and I think a lot of the the reforms of of the so-called reforms of the liturgical movement, not the not the reforms of Vatican II, because it was liturgical movement did this. It was born out of a kind of a false ecumenism. Can't we all just get along? And maybe if we look alike, then they'll like us, and we'll like them more. And that, to me, is an, a disingenuous form of ecumenism, to, to be more like them, to de-emphasize those things which make us different. Um, I, I don't think that's an authentic uh, ecumenism. So, at any rate, I hope that helps a little. Thank you. Oy. No softballs today. Who we got now, dear voice in my head? 
Deborah from Green Bay, are you with us, Deborah? Hi, Father. Hello. What can I do for you? I have a softball for you. Um, following oh, yesterday's good. Sunday's um, Passion of St. John the Baptist, um, the feast day mm -hmm. of the Passion of St. John the Baptist, yeah. I got to thinking about him, and I said to myself, how long was he in jail under with Herod? And I said, I didn't know. I was going to call you and ask. I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> it's hardly a softball. I would, I would guesstimate, uh, I would guesstimate about a year. That would be my guess, because when Jesus started his ministry, they sh their ministries overlapped, um, and then all of a sudden they stop overlapping, and Jesus goes north. And then John is executed, and then Jesus is executed. So it seems to have happened in the middle of the ministry of Jesus, and I would think about a year, maybe a little less than that. Because uh, Herod found him, Herod, was it Herod Philip? Which Herod had him, or was it Herod Antipas? It was one of the, you got to think of Herod as a last name, the Herod family. There were lots of Herods. This wasn't the one who killed the babies. This was one of his sons uh, who executed John the Baptist. Um the uh, um, Herod, that particular Herod, was was intrigued by John and, and was torn about whether to execute him or to uh, to uh, elevate him. So, I, that's that would be my guesstimate. So, I hope that helps a little. It helps a lot. Thank you, Father. God bless. Who we got now? Agnes from Illinois. Are you with us, Agnes from Illinois? Yes, Father Gummy Bear. I thought you could help me out with this. Um, during the week, I go visiting sure. to different churches, and I'm noticing that yeah. at the offertory, the priest is not washing his hands. And in some cases, hmm. um, there's also, I've observed, where the uh, distribution of host, where they bring the, um, like, uh, I don't know, they put the host in a container, and you select your own, your, you select your own host. I I'm oh, not comfortable grief. with this. I think this is a liturgical You shouldn't abuse. be. <laughs> yes, and I I'm think you're saying, right. And I'm, yes. and I'm thinking, you know, with all these liberties, I mean, are we simplifying the Mass? Is this allowed? Um, and then my next question no. is, no. knowing this, I mean, how should I address this? Should I address it to the priest or should I go to the bishop? No, you go to the priest first. You go to the priest first, then if he says, that's because I'm the priest and I can do what I want, go with someone else. That's what the Bible says in Matthew 18th, and 19th, 18th chapter, 19th verse and following. Then you go, then you go to the, the local ecclesiastical authority. Uh, I, I, I read a few days ago something from Sacrosanctum Concilium that no one may change anything in the Mass on his own initiative, not even a priest. And, you know, it is to me the height of arrogance when some priest decides um, that that he knows better than than the church at large. Now, there are sometimes pastoral exceptions. For instance, if a priest had a terrible condition that water on his hands made worse, well, then he wouldn't do the the uh, washing of the hands. But that's a pastoral reason, not a theological reason. Uh, and he should get permission from the bishop. As to take your own host, I have a feeling that's that's COVID hysteria, and uh, um, uh, it is, um, you know, probably from that. And it is not 
less, uh, what's the word? Uh, it is not more hygienic to let someone pick their own host and grovel about with their mitts in in a in a in a in a ciborium or a flat uh, vessel to take your own host you're touching a lot of other hosts um you know that is not allowed you're supposed to receive communion from the representative of the church be it uh, priest or deacon or extraordinary ministers um you, it's something communion is always something you receive because grace is something you receive there's a symbol there and, you know, it may be done out of COVID hysteria, but I, I don't, you know, I think COVID is a very real thing. I'm not saying the whole thing is an hysteria. But when we begin to do things that are not recommended, uh, uh, that becomes hysterical. For instance, uh, well, the priest doesn't touch the person. You know, that that there's very little... Uh, Evidence, as far as I can tell, the distribution of communion by one person uh, is, is a factor for spreading uh, the virus. It, it probably is not. So, um, you know, I hope that helps a little. Go to him first, though. Don't yeah. don't rat him out until you've talked to him. Okay? All right. Okay. It's, it takes okay, a little so bravery, I'm, but I'm you're brave. Okay. Sure. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Father. God bless. Thank you. Okay, who we got now? David in Lyle. Are you with us, David in Lyle? Oh, indeed I am. And greetings from the home of St. Procopius Abbey. If I can uh, get on. Oh, get, yes, get of course. A little, for this, a little advertisement there for St. Procopius. Know uh, it well. Know it well. Attorney, as an attorney, I have many a time had to tell a person, well, the judge ordered it. You don't have to agree with him, yes. but you better obey him, or bad things are going to happen. Now, when yeah. that involves a human being, that doesn't that doesn't really matter. Uh, but what if I decide to say, God, I disagree that you should never have made lying a sin, as I just pull something out of my head. You should never have made okay. lying a sin, but but I will obey you. You've declared lying a sin. You're the you're 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 the one. Is the disagreement itself about what God has made a sin, a sin in and of itself? No, I would say not. If you're going to obey, um, you see, it's what we do, not what we think, uh, that that ultimately matters. Now we can commit sins of thought, but in general, if we obey the Lord because He has said it. Well, that's kind of an Old Testament approach. I've talked about the chukim, the, the arbitrary laws that you just don't understand, but you obey them. Uh, and that's honorable in itself. But one should ask, Lord, uh, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, uh, I'd love you to explain this to me. And until you do, I'm going to obey. Uh, so, um, no, I don't. I think if one has an o obedient attitude that the Lord understands like an indulgent parent. We don't understand our parents' rules until we're parents ourselves. And further along, as the old song says, we'll learn all about it. Speaking of further along, Drew is coming up, and he'll learn you all about it.